0: Good morning, everyone. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 26, we're going to be there in just a minute. Ezekiel 26. Now, a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night prayer meeting, August 9, Micah Tuggle prayed that each of us would seriously study Bible apologetics and share the results with other people. That's part of what I intend to do today. If you don't know what apologetics are, you'll know if you hang with me a few minutes or if you talk to Micah Tuggle. Josh McDowell was a brilliant lawyer who was also an atheist. He investigated the Bible like he would a law case and with his proofs, He intended to obliterate Christianity, send it crashing into a tree. Instead, his investigations proved the Bible was truth. And so he wrote a book, Evidence Which Demands a Verdict. Many skeptics, like my own cousin, trusted Christ as a result of reading that book. I would highly recommend the book to you. It's in our chapel library. Uh, There's two volumes of it, and frankly... Both volumes are checked out right at the moment, but if you're interested, check with my grandson, Jonathan, the librarian, and he can put you on the list to see it. But it's an excellent book. It helps you understand proofs of what the Word of God teaches that took a man who was violently atheistic, switched him around 180 degrees where he actually became a believer in Christ. So I'd highly recommend that book. It also is full of apologetics. In other words, it has very interesting, solid proofs of why the Bible is true and why Christianity is real and why Christ died for our sins. I'd recommend it to you. H.R. Niebuhr described liberal theology as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And I thought, that really covers it. It's fallacious teaching, and it gives a false hope, and it's a false faith. Liberal theology makes a God in your own image but saves no one from God's coming judgment and blatantly contradicts God's word. The Lord God made the heavens and the earth. He also created all the billions of stars and calls them each by name. And he's the same God who revealed himself in scripture. He counts the number of stars, it says in Psalm 147. He counts the number of stars. He calls them all by name. And That's in the inspired word of God. So, how do we know the Bible is the word of God and not the Koran or the Bhagavad Gita or the Tripitaka, or the Veda. From Confucius to Muhammad to Joseph Smith and Mormonism, many books around the world claim to be sacred. So how can we be sure that the Bible is authentic and stands separate from the rest as really divine truth? To me, the undeniable proof which sets the Bible apart from all these other supposedly holy books is future events predicted with 100% accuracy. It's verifiable accuracy in even secular history, the things that happen. For example, Isaiah wrote 800 years before Christ, and things related to Christ— Prophetic messages all came true 800 years before. It's very difficult for anybody to say, well, Isaiah really lived about the time of Christ and that's why he knew. Well, that's not true. We all know 800 years prior is when Isaiah lived. I'll just take one example so that you can understand. In 332 B.C., Alexander the Great conquered the island fortress of Tyre by building a causeway from the ruins of the old city. This fulfilled the prophecy in Ezekiel 26, verse 4. If you'll look at that in your scripture, Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 4, written 250 years before in 582 B.C. during Ezekiel's captivity in Babylon. We know when the Babylonian captivity was, and that's when this was written. At the time of Ezekiel, Tyre was the capital of Phoenicia, and the island fortress hadn't even been built yet. So Ezekiel predicted this, Ezekiel Ezekiel 26.4, And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre, and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her, and make her like the top of a rock. This is the Lord talking. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. And also her daughter villages, which are in the fields, shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. 250 years later, Alexander scraped away everything, leaving bare rock. And if the Lord God thinks that that's sufficient proof for his involvement in human affairs. Maybe we should pay attention as well. To this day, you can see pictures of fishermen spreading their nets on that large flat rock which used to be Tyre. During his lifetime on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled 300 prophetic forecasts written hundreds of years before his birth, which prophesied his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. All of it prophesied. The mathematical odds are statistic impossibilities since prophecy after prophecy were fulfilled exactly as written. The only way to deny biblical truth is to willfully ignore the facts and make a God in your own image. At the creation, Genesis 1, God created man in his image, it says. But you can't switch that around and say, Well, therefore, God is in man's image. That's not true. Genesis 1 says, God created man in his image. Ever since that time, man has been creating God in man's image. A homemade God who conforms to our desires like a heavenly cosmic bellhop. And it's a nifty God in the human imagination. For example, reincarnation is a mainstream teaching in Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, and Jainism. But to keep recycling life after death like an aluminum beer can is a handy myth for avoiding God's judgment. But the word of God is very clear. It says it is appointed for men to die once, and after that the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 9, 27, and 28. You only die once, folks. It's not a continual progression as these other false religions have proclaimed for centuries. Folks disbelieve the word of God and create their own God at their eternal peril. So here comes the big question. Are some sins more egregious than others? In other words, Are some sins count more against you than other sins? Or another way of saying it, does God frown more at some sins than he does at others? I'd like to look at some scriptures with you and examine that. We've already discussed the terrible consequences of eternal punishment resulting from the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief is the one sin that sends people to hell. Romans 3.23 states this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm going to relate some sins to you today, and maybe you will identify with some of them. But the truth is, Christ can forgive you of any of these sins that I'm mentioning, even though some of them are very serious. And scripture relates that. Some of them have more punishment connected with them than other sins. Some folks deny that they're sinners in the same way that some folks deny that they are beggars. There's a popular saying you've probably heard that beggars can't be choosers, but that's false. Beggars can be very choosy sometimes and even deny that they have needs Sinners can also be choosy and deny that they need a savior while creating another God in their own image. Both groups are disastrously wrong. In fact, several years ago, Merrill and I found a homeless 33-year-old man sleeping in his car in the chapel parking lot. And we invited him into our home for nine days, including housing him through the violent Hurricane Michael He finally had a dry bed, shower, home-cooked food, safety. Marilyn made him New England coffee for breakfast, but he refused to drink it, and he said he only drank Starbucks coffee. I'm serious. This is a homeless guy in his car paying five bucks for a cup of stupid Starbucks. Marilyn and I were amazed. When we tried to help, he denied that he had needs. And Marilyn privately told me, not in front of him, then he can get back in his own car if he wants to. And I agreed with her. I mean, this is craziness. He was picky about what he would eat or drink. Marilyn and I got a little exasperated with him, and we were not unhappy when he left after nine days to go live with my brother in Kansas for six months. And my brother Steve had the very same problems with him. The man lacked... Gratefulness, and refused to recognize that he had needs. Many unbelievers are like this man by refusing they need a savior. It's the same kind of insanity. It's the same kind of stuff that doesn't make sense. The Lord God addresses this type of irrational thinking in Revelation 3.17, and I'm going to read that to you. Because you say I am rich... Have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten Therefore, be zealous and repent. The church at Laodicea, which that letter was written to, reflects a lot of church problems in Christendom today, the need to repent and believe. So, let's get back to my original question. Are some sins worse than other sins? Sin is a slippery word to define If you ask the average person on the street how they define sin, you would likely be told that sin refers to gross behavior such as aggravated child abuse, rape, armed robbery, murder, some sort of thing that would result in throwing a person in prison. But Christians, with some knowledge of the Bible, are apt to give a very different answer. They may tell you that sin is any thought, word, or deed contrary to the will of God. They are also likely to tell you that all sin is equally bad in God's sight. The wages of sin is death, after all. And that's true. Any sin. The wages of sin is death. They quote that from Romans 6.23. And that means any sin from murder to breaking the speed limit. In fact, some have even stated, in God's sight, sin is sin, and thus homosexuality is no more serious in God's sight than gossip or envy or anger. But is that really true? Is all sin equally bad in God's sight, or are some sins worse than others? Are they exceedingly wicked? While discussing the first chapter of Romans I reviewed thoroughly what the Bible taught on the subject of homosexuality. With the spread of AIDS in society and even Christian churches being encouraged to accept practicing homosexuals, I wanted to be clear what the scriptures teach on that subject. My attention was caught immediately by the wording of two of the earliest references to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who practiced homosexuality. Genesis 13.13 states... Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Genesis 18.20 adds, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. If all sin is equally bad, why would Scripture add the modifiers exceedingly wicked and exceedingly grave? Abraham's attitude toward the king of Sodom is also noteworthy. While Abraham interacted in commerce with the sons of Heth and made a covenant with the ungodly Philistine ruler Abimelech in Genesis 20, he refused to have anything to do with the king of Sodom, refusing even to accept presents from him in Genesis 14. Where was this wonderful acceptance of the sinner that we hear so much about exhibited in God man's Abraham? Leviticus 18 added a new dimension to my thoughts. In this chapter, which spells out God's displeasure toward a series of specific sexual sins, including incest, homosexuality, and bestiality, we are told Leviticus 18:21. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, who is a false man-made God, by the way. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore I have visited its punishment upon it so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. Here God gives us his people a tip for the future. And that is that gross sexual sin and worshiping other gods results in the destruction of nations. Is this a punishment that accompanies all sins? Obviously not, which leads us to the next point. Some sins are uniquely serious in that they have special penalties attached to them. Obviously, God does not view all sin equally. Because it matters to God, he has described so graphically the exceeding abomination aspect. For example, premature death can result. Taking the Lord's Supper, we're warned in 1 Corinthians 11 is a uniquely solemn time of remembrance in which the believer, by taking the elements of communion, shows that he belongs to Christ and is aware of the high price paid for his sin. In fact, we just had that this morning, didn't we? To take communion in an unworthy manner is to become guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord himself, according to 1 Corinthians 11.27. Christians are advised to examine themselves since the one who takes it unworthily eats and drinks judgment to himself. It is for this reason we are told that many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. That other sins result in premature death is suggested also by 1 John 516 to 21 which I'm going to read to you. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin that does not lead to death, he will ask, And he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. The sin leading to death is false teachers. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Who deliberately refuse to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And who teach others that Jesus Christ is not God. That's the sin that's. Referred to here in 1 John. Verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. That's the Apostle John speaking, the inspired word of God. In other words, keep yourselves from homemade gods and from the imagination of false teachers greater condemnation can result. Some of the most scathing words spoken by Jesus were addressed to the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. In a lengthy denunciation of their practices recorded in Matthew 23, he hit hypocrisy the hardest of all, stating in verse 14, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, "'because you devour widows' houses.'" even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. Greater? It's of such a grave sin. We might well ask, if all sins are equally bad in God's sight, why do some receive more condemnation than others? We must also reckon with Jesus' words to Pontius Pilate in John nineteen eleven, when he said, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Christ said that. The disqualification for leadership can result. To accept leadership in spiritual matters is to accept an awesome responsibility. To agree to be judged more strictly than others, in fact. Because James warns us, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that we shall incur a stricter Judgment. That's James 3 1. If you stand up here to teach other people, you have to realize the fact that you are under a stricter judgment than the people that you're talking to. And that's a fact. All teachers have to consider that seriously. All of us. There's no pastor that gets a free pass. In the qualifications for leadership, Sit down in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We are first warned that an elder who is an overseer, a leader, must be above reproach. Notice there's nothing optional about this command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a desirable goal. It is no more optional than you must be born again. Same word. Spoken to Nicodemus, John 3, 7, when Christ said, You must be leaders, must be above reproach. A sin for which a typical church member may be readily forgiven and restored to fellowship after repentance, such as embezzling funds, should also be forgiven in the case of a repentant elder. But that is not the same thing as restoring him to office, he may be forgiven, but he will no longer be above reproach. Nor will he have a good reputation in the community, which is another qualification set down for elders in First Timothy three seven. His sin carries a serious price tag—disqualification for leadership. Forgiveness is free, but trust is earned. No wonder that Proverbs twenty two one says. A good name is to be more desired than great riches. Riches can be lost overnight. And so too can a good reputation. It can be destroyed by a single sin. And many of us have known pastors and teachers who have fallen in that. And then unfortunately, their congregation loved them so much that they restored them to their former position. Folks... That's anti-biblical. Depraved sexual sins is another in the scripture. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that sins of a sexual nature are especially offensive to God and bring their own distinctive penalties. Romans 1, for example, use several strong words to describe the practice of homosexuality. Impurity. Degrading passion. Unnatural. Indecent depraved not proper that's all in verses 24 26 28 it tells us that people who practice this sin receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error flee immorality paul warned every other sin that a man commits is outside the body but the immoral man sins against his own body 1 corinthians 6:18 since it is only on grounds of sexual immorality, this permits divorce in Matthew nineteen 9, shouldn't we conclude that God viewed sexual sin as more serious than other sins commonly used as excuses for divorce? This is contrary to the trends of our society where any reason can be given for divorce. You can divorce on any whim. I don't like the way you scramble my eggs. I mean, there's goofy stuff out there. Marriages being severed. I mean, you even see it a lot in Hollywood where marriages last 37 minutes. Well, I'm joking. Maybe they last a week, some of them. Contagious sins. Some sins call for quarantine. We may think of them as contagious sins requiring great caution on the part of Christians who may otherwise be infected by them. They grow silently beneath the surface of the Christian community, spreading like cancer unless they are rooted out. Paul compared them to leaven, which is yeast organisms which invisibly permeate the bread causing it to rise in 1 Corinthians 5-6. He instructed the Corinthians not to associate or even eat a meal with a so-called Christian engaged in any of these serious sins. Instead, such people are to be removed from church fellowship, a command seldom wholly followed in our day, even by Bible-believing churches. Sins listed here include sexual immorality, financial swindling, and even coveting. Coveting is to want something that you don't own that somebody else has. And you think, well, that's kind of a minor sin, isn't it? Trent has a nifty sports car. Maybe I need one too. No, you cannot covet what other people have. Scripture says that. Don't do it. There are still some other contagious sins calling for us to keep our distance. The Christians of Rome were born to stay away from those spreading false and divisive teaching contrary to what they had learned that's in Romans 16, 17. and the Thessalonian Christians were warned not to associate with lazy undisciplined Christians who refused to work for a living that's 2 Thessalonians verse 6 11 and 14 diagnostic sins in at least 3 different sections of the New Testament were given a list of sins practiced by those who are not going to heaven We may think of them as diagnostic sins. Sins which diagnose the unsaved person and which form a checklist for those who need to examine themselves to see if they are really in the faith. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. I'm going to read you. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves... Nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. What a list. It's certainly not that these are unforgivable sins. Because Paul adds the following in verse 11. And such were some of you. Some of you guys were that way. Some of you were guilty of that. And now you're sons of the living God because you have trusted Christ and those sins were forgiven isn't that interesting? Sins that otherwise would keep you out of heaven for eternity are forgiven by the blood of Christ because some of you were guilty of that. And now it's not true that committing those sins will cause a person to lose his salvation. Even a righteous man like David fell into the sin of adultery and murder. He was forgiven both. David is in heaven. It is rather that these sins are so serious and so incompatible with having Christ's life in us that no true believer can continue to practice such sins. 1 John 3, 9. Thus, while a believer may fall into such sin, he does not stay there. A person remaining in such sin may be deceived about his salvation and not really a believer at all. We are warned not to be deceived by people's words. Ephesians 5.6 and 1 Corinthians 6.9 It is easy to claim that you're a Christian, but where's the fruit? By their fruits, not words. By their fruits, you shall know them, Jesus said in Matthew 7.20. The penalty for sin. If some sins are more serious than others, can we conclude, as some religious groups hold, that exceedingly grave sins will send a person to hell, while other sins will not? That would be a dangerous error, too. The Bible never refers to mortal and venial sins. In Romans 1:28 to 28-32, we learn that not only murder and adultery are sins worthy of death, but also envy. Arrogance, boastfulness, and being unmerciful. Similarly, James, after warning his readings not to show partiality to the rich, concludes, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. That's James chapter 2 verse 10. We cannot avoid condemnation by choosing to commit only the sins that we deem less serious. The violation of any of God's commands makes us lawbreakers under condemnation and worthy of eternal death. Romans 3.23 and 6.23 God does not grade on the curve. Whether our score is 64 or 96, we all fall short of the glory of God. Once in that condition, whether because of exceeding grave sins or other sins, we are in need of God's grace and mercy extended to us in Christ Jesus, who died to provide our salvation. Romans 5, 6 through 9. All the world is accountable to God, Paul tells us, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That's Romans 3. So, in conclusion... The insistence that all sin is viewed equally by God has led to some bizarre assumptions today by ill-informed Christians. I've actually heard it said, for example, that if in God's sight I'm guilty of adultery simply by lusting after another person in my heart, I can't see that it's any worse to actually go out and do it because I'm already condemned. But Paul argues against that kind of reasoning in Romans 6. And he would label such inference as satanic. If we love God, we will obey him. John fourteen twenty three. So in our haste to convince people that all sin is serious, and it is, serious enough to result in eternal condemnation, we are in danger of taking many sins much too casually. We have committed the double error of trivializing gross sin while failing to convince most people that any sin is serious enough to cause eternal separation from God unless that sin is cleansed by the blood of Christ. God grant us a renewed vision of his holiness and the boldness to denounce the sins of our generation for what they are. In fact, in Canada... It's illegal for me to stand up and tell you the very things that I told you today regarding homosexuality. Ministers have gone to prison in Canada for saying this. But it's what the scripture says. It's what it teaches. But see, society, it's not popular. The way things are culturally now. Because homosexuality is accepted. Really a different option. And all the rest of the alphabet that's involved are not biblical positions. And yet, some even professing Christians are accepting of those because they want to be open. And yet, I have read what scripture says about it. It's not my opinion. It's what scripture says. And that's what we need to go by, folks. What does it teach? Are we going to obey it? Are we going to listen to it? First John one nine says this, if we confess our sins He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if today you are guilty of any of these sins that I've mentioned, even some of the most dramatic ones that we call the greatest punishment, if you are guilty of any of those, you still can ask forgiveness of our great God and Savior, who shed his blood for each one of us. The Lamb of God. That's what we were talking about this morning. That's who we were worshiping this morning. The Lamb of God who gave himself, who died for us. That lamb sacrifice is what cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Just a matter of belief, a matter of repentance, a matter of accepting a Savior. Blessed Lord, again we bow in your presence giving you thanks. That the great God of heaven made a way of escape for each one of us who are guilty. Because we're all sinners. The only difference is some are forgiven sinners and some are not. Some have asked Christ to forgive them and some have not. Some have believed and some have not. And so this morning as sinners, all of us, we thank you for the opportunity to have our sins forgiven by the great And precious blood of Christ our Lord, in whose name we give thanks.